Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Hello, I have a very special guest on my show today. Lee Wedding. I have been listening to Lee's radio show for for a long time. It seems like my whole life, but that's not true. <laughs> and he just brings forth such great um, people to talk about their near death experiences and a lot of other things. And I've gotten to know Lee a little bit, and he's just oh my gosh, he just has. Exudes knowledge and and love and compassion, and I'm just so excited to have you here today, Lee. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about him. Lee Whitting is host of the podcast NDE Radio, which he founded six years ago. He recently retired after 15 years as as chaplain at Eastern Maine Medical Center, and continues to pastor a congregation at the Union Street Brick Church in Bangor, Maine. Before starting NDE Radio for the International Association for Near-Death Studies, IONS, he served as their public, um, publications director. And you're, you're still very involved in IONS, aren't you? Um, that's why, you, well, that's why do, you do the show, right? I do the show. I'm, um, uh, I was on the board to start with and uh, suggested that, that we put the show together right. because I thought it would be a good medium. Yeah, and, uh, it's a great. Yeah, so uh, so I, I yes, I'm definitely involved. Right, uh, right. It's a great organization. In fact, I was going to speak at this this conference in Salt Lake City yes. until it got canceled on account of the. Yeah, virus. I saw. I was going to be there. I, I thought I saw you on the on the speaker list. So, so Lee, let's let's start at the beginning. Um, I know that you had a near death experience as a child, and can you tell us a little a little bit about that? Sure. Well, um, I might start even earlier. Remember I told you that being born under a sign. Yes. Story? Yes. I love that. All right. Well, uh, my mother, my mother always delight when telling this story. So, so it's sort of infused in my yes. mind, but she said, you know, you were born under a sign. I said, what do you mean? Because it sounds so ominous. She said, well, you were, I was born in a Salvation Army hospital in, in, um, during the Second World War, uh, because my father was away at the war, and uh, above the delivery table was this sign painted on the ceiling that said "Jesus saved." So Love it. I could literally say I was born under a sign. <laughs> and and then when my mother and I went back to our little uh, apartment in Yonkers, New York, uh, she told me much later that she'd had a visit from her uh, her grandmother who had passed. Uh, the spirit just floating above the ceiling in the uh, in her kitchen. Uh, and she took it as a blessing that I had survived and uh, that uh, she was watching over two of us. 
something else I thought about, you know, in, in thinking about this show in my early years was I had a wooden rocking horse. It was painted in really bright colors, glossy paint. Probably would have been totally illegal today. It's probably full of lead paint. But my mother said, I used to sit in front of that with, that, with a paintbrush and a glass of water or a jar of water. And I would paint the horse with water over and over and over and over. She said, I could spend doing that, you know, spend time by the hour doing that sort of thing. And, um, and I thought about it later and I thought, you know, where you come from, where we come from before we're even conceived is a place of much more luminous, intense color, at least according to the near-death experience, which sees this, you know, this beautiful field with luminous flowers and glorious leaves that shine. And I thought, I was trying to recapture a brighter color, a memory of a brighter color by doing that over and over Very again. Very interesting. Think of any other why. And you hear a lot also that um, from near-death experiencers that they see colors that they've never even known were, you know, yes, and just how vibrant. And someone said the other day, it's like it sparkles everywhere. That may have been you. (laughs) It's intense. And I think it's more than a, more than a visual. It's more of a a total uh, perception, right? Rather than just a a visual one. But it's, it's, when, when these things come back to the brain, after you've experienced it out of the body, it is, um, that it's you're at such uh, uh, you have such a desire to tell people about yes. it, at least good, and to communicate what you've experienced, and it's so hard to find the words. I remember PMH saying, "You just want to shout to the world," <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but it's ineffable what you can't even uh, explain. Yeah. yeah, although PMH has done a wonderful job. Of she has that she and, that she has extracting. <laughs> These uh, explanations from her, uh, from kids especially, right. very good. So tell us a little bit about what happened when you were, I think you were two or three years old. Oh, no, I was, I was older than that, actually. And um, what happened was my father came back from the war and he was, he was a little shell-shocked, I, I think, although he would never have admitted it. Um, he was first in the Merchant Marine and uh, they were convoying materials over to England before we actually were involved in World War II. And the ship just ahead of him was blown up. It was torpedoed. Oh my gosh. And exploded. And he was the he was the medical, he was the chief petty officer who also had medical duties on the ship. He was the only one there was nobody trained as a doctor. And he but they couldn't stop. They all these American sailors from the ship ahead in the water but they couldn't stop because they would then get torpedoed and then the next ship would get there so the orders were always just sail on through and i think that just must have done him some oh yeah um uh, ptsd type yes uh, damage anyway when he came back um he found a little island in uh, northern new jersey almost into new york state and it was on a little lake, and he built a little cottage. In fact, it was one of those, um, back in those days, Sears would sell cottage kits. And he put this thing together, and this was our 
this was our escape. And it was so close to the shore that there was even a little bridge uh, that we walked across to get to it. It's still there. My sister's family owns it now. But um, anyway, uh, I was about seven years old, and my father got into town. My mother was in changing. I think she was getting ready to go to church. And I was still waiting out in the water, and I shouldn't have. I, I sh at seven, you really should know how to swim, but I didn't know how to swim, and I waded out too far. And I, the shore went out on a fairly level way, and then it dropped. And I knew that, but I just, just being seven years old, I went too far. Came, went down, went way down, came up, screamed, because I was terrified for my mother. And uh, then all the air was out of my lungs, so I just sank down. Well, my mother fortunately heard me, and she came running out of the cottage, down the steps, and I realized suddenly I'm watching her do this, because although my body's down in the bottom of the lake, I'm up in a birch tree watching as my mother ran down the steps and ran down to the shore and dove in. She knew about where I was and found, found me, dragged me out, threw me threw my body face down over a, um, like a log. Because she said, I wanted to pump, later told me, I wanted to pump the water out of your lungs. But by doing that, she sort of invented CPR because she was doing compressions on my back that were actually making the log do compressions. Interesting, yes. And so, uh, meantime, I'm up there. And one of the interesting things about it was... Um, you know, you, you think seven-year-old would be terrified by something like this, but I think children are so equipped to n remember uh, an inkling of what, where we came from, yes. that it seemed completely natural to me. I, you know, I thought, okay. And uh, I think you, you're almost thinking like your adult soul rather than like a seven-year-old brain would think. And I saw there was a uh, place I Go, sort of a light off in the distance, and there weren't other any other beings around. But um, then I also saw how upset my mother was, and I decided I'd better get back to my body. Right. And then I was body. Wow. But for years, for years after that, Marla, it was really interesting. I had this dream, a recurring dream, that I was seeing sinking down way from the light, which I took to be the surface of the water, and that it was getting darker and darker as I sunk down, and uh, that it was dark all around me. So when I was so uh, 21, I think, in my 20s, I went back to the cottage. I had been sort of haunted by the screen, right. and I decided to go dive in and see if that's what it was really like. So I picked it a sunny day like the day I, this had happened to me and dove down. It wasn't like that at all. It was the sunlight covered the whole surface of the lake. It wasn't a pinpoint of light. There was plenty of light in the water around me. It wasn't like this dark tunnel. And it was only later after reading about near-death experiences that I thought, I'll bet I journeyed into the direction of the light for a moment. And then when I decided to go into my body, I was going away from the right. light. That's what the dream was all about. In, that was what interesting. Was. What a that must have released a lot of you know those negative memories you know from from sort of your shoulders. Well, it was a it was a fearful dream. Yeah, you know, as to sinking in the lake, and after I realized what it was about, it was like 
it, it went away. I right. never, never had. Uh, I love when you say that you said it so beautifully that when you were up there in that birch tree, it was just, just the way it was supposed to be. It was just so, so natural because I think it, think of it as you're just back closer to your home, to your, to your true home. And it was just so natural. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So how did, how did this experience change you? I know you got into astrology and I don't know if that was because of your NDE, but can you uh, tell us a little bit about that? Astronomy. Astro- I, I'm sorry, astro- astronomy. Astrology. I, later on, I got interested in astrology, but never got very good at yeah. it. It's just too, too complex. Astronomy. Yeah. One of the things that uh, I, I developed a real interest in almost immediately after this was an interest in finding out more about the stars, going out at night, looking at big spaces, you know. And, um, and I uh, I got after my mother two things I wanted from her. One, I wanted to go to the Hayden Planetarium as often as I could because this wonderful planetarium in New York. In fact, I went back uh, two years ago, and it's all changed now. They used to have this huge uh, projector that was looked like, a, looked like a, an enormous ant and it had all of these lenses. It was uh, built by Zeiss. It was a big German instrument and sat in the middle of the room and projected the stars and the, and if you wanted a meteor shower or comets or the moon or any of that, it was an amazing piece of uh, equipment. Well, now it's all digital. <laughs> they don't need any of that. Anymore. <laughs> but so I didn't get to see the, I think it was a Zeiss Opticon. Was, well, I can't remember. No, maybe that wasn't it. Anyway, um, so, uh, and I love those shows. And we'd usually go on the holidays. We'd either go around my birthday in November or we'd go at Christmas. So they it would be the Christmas story would be mixed into the whole oh, thing. Oh, wow. And you know, all of that. So that, that was a bit of uh, spiritual infusion along with all of this. But um, I finally decided, and I know it. I remember now what, what triggered it was this, they were making a little projector that was uh, like, not like the big Zeiss projector, but it, it, it had a light bulb in it and you turned it on and you could project the, the stars on your ceiling. And I decided I was going to build a planetarium. In so your attic, I right? In the attic. <laughs> so I took over a room in the attic. I went all over we lived in Cranford, New Jersey, all over the town, trying to find big pieces of cardboard, um, you know, stores that sold refrigerators and that sort of thing. And I would haul them back home and I built a whole skyline around the room with the cutout of buildings, just like they had at the Hayden Planetarium. They had the, they had the New York skyline. They were uh, assuming you were standing in the middle of Central Park. Anyway, I, I did my own skyline. I don't think it was based on any actual location. And I had lights behind it that I could dim, you know, so I could do sunsets and sunrises. And then I would write a story and I would have this projector. Uh, in fact, I still have it up there. I don't know if it still works. I haven't turned it on in years. Um, and I would have uh, like bright flashing light if there was going to be a, a, an explosion or a a meteor strike or something like that. And I'd write these scripts out, you know, to do a story. 
and to do a show. And my mother, who was very patient with me, would come up. We had a mattress on the floor, and she would lie on the mattress and look at the ceiling oh. <laughs> in the dark. And I would do the, I would do this whole show. That... And uh, you know, it was about different different things every time. I wouldn't make her sit through the same show. <laughs> Thank goodness. He was my only audience. I yeah. I think maybe I got a couple friends up there once or twice, but they weren't they they didn't have the patience. Right. They, they right. uh, well, I know you talked. The other, go ahead. The other thing I went after my mother about was getting me a um, telescope yes. so that I could go out and look at the moon, look at the craters on the moon, look at Mars, look at the uh, look at Jupiter and and the um, uh, moons around Jupiter, and so I would, I'd be out there, you know, even in the dead of winter, you know, looking at, looking at stuff and thinking, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. I was thinking it was really wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I, I didn't really identify it or, or tie it in with my near death experience at all, but I think probably it was came as a result. Yeah. Now for my mother, uh, one of the things that, uh, committed her, I think, to the Catholic Church was the fact that she was so happy that my life could and uh, so in that, on that account, she and my um, sister Anne and my other sister Nancy um, had to go to a Catholic Sunday school. Well, this was so different from anything I experienced. There were these tough nuns who, you know, if you didn't memorize your catechism lesson for the day, they would whack you on the back of your hand with a, with a ruler, wooden ruler. And uh, so, you know, they're just instilling guilt like only the Catholics can, can do. <laughs> and um, so that, uh, uh, and that too was one of the things that tied me to um, uh, I, I had mentioned before we started this, I'd mentioned uh, the seventh seal, the Bergman, yes. Ing Ingmar Bergman's seventh seal. And um, since we're in my childhood, maybe we can talk about innocence now. Absolutely. Because I had, I had asked Marla about why is the show named the way Interviews with Innocence. And interviews with Innocence, because I certainly don't feel that I'm innocent. And probably none of your guests do for that. <laughs> if you ask them, are you innocent? Are you innocent enough to be on my show? I think they would probably say, no way. Right, right. <laughs> but anyway, uh, trying to think about adult innocence, uh, I, I remembered this, how profoundly affected I was by the Seventh Seal. This Bergman movie it was made in 1958. Was, I was 16, I guess. Anyway, um, the story is this night Antonius Block is returning from the Crusades, where he's probably killed many people and maybe participated in burning down this or storming that. Or he comes back, he's full of guilt and dis despair, and I think in a way. And um, the, the countryside is full of the plague, which our COVID-19 is, is trying to reenact right, right now. Um, he uh, knows he's going to die. He's encountered death, but he challenges death to a game of chess, which they play on the beach. And there's these wonderful scenes. It's a black and white movie, and which is appropriate for playing chess with death, I think. And um, 
Antonius makes the mistake of going to confession, which is how I tied it to the being becoming a Catholic, and he tells the priest what his next move is going to be, how he thinks he can beat death. Well, it turns out the priest is death sitting in the confessional. So he doesn't see him, of course, because they have a yes. screen in confessionals. So he gives away he gives away the game plan in confession, which in a lot of ways turned me against the Catholic Church. Also got me interested in playing chess. <laughs> and um, but also in this movie is uh, this young couple, uh, an entertainer. He's a young guy. He's a juggler. He he tells jokes and dances and performs for people. He's he's easily a victim. I mean, he goes into places like bars trying to, you know, ask for change and they probably ridicule him all the time. But he is he's got this young wife and this little baby. They travel in this wagon together. They love each other dearly. He's he's the fool in the classic sense of the tarot card fool. And um and that and he's innocent. Yes. He has innocence. He hasn't been spoiled by I mean he's he's horrified by the the scenes of um, the Black Death, the plague. Yes, yes. Well, it was really interesting. You're, I think you're the second person who had asked me that, and I never once thought that a person would think interviews with innocence saying that the people I'm interviewing are innocent. It didn't even cross my mind. And as I told Lee, it was, it was downloaded to me from from the light, the source, whatever you may whatever you may call it. And um, for me, it's, it's more of that when a, a young child is, is born right in the very beginning, which we all have that still inside of us somewhere. And we're so pure and we're, we haven't learned that we only hang out with certain people or, or we haven't learned about fear. We haven't learned about all of those things that that complicate complicate life and so bringing us back celebrating the very young but also bringing us back to that innocence by telling stories and near-death experiences and that sort of thing so so anyway that's that's a really interesting um story though about about that for you so anyway well let's let's move on so I know um, your journey continued as you went to Columbia, deep interest in Buddhism. And I, I find it really intriguing that at such a young age, um, while you were in, in college, you took a job as a caseworker in Harlem. And that just intrigues me. So did you throughout your life always have this desire to, to help, you know, kind of the I had to say they probably weren't all underprivileged. You know, Harlem carries its own meaning with it. I think it's a, a much nicer place now. But can you just briefly tell us about that? Because I, then I want to really dive into to the work you did okay, after well, that. We had moved from New Jersey to uh, Pittsburgh, outside of Pittsburgh. I had been growing up a very in a very middle class, um, white, primarily white society. Um, my father, I'll, I'll, I'll take it back a little further. When I graduated from high school, my father said, well, you're going to go to Columbia. He'd, he'd lived in New York. He knew all about New York. He gave me uh, 50 bucks, put me on a bus from Pittsburgh to uh, 
New York. I was, I graduated, I guess I was six, the year I was going to turn seven. And said, um, well, New York's uh, going to be a huge distraction if you wait till September when you start school. He said, so go to New York and figure it out. Get yourself a job, find a place to live, and uh, let me know if you need anything. But <laughs> he went, I had, so I had $50 to work with and a bus. Yeah. And I'd lived a fairly sheltered life. So I go to New York. I go to an employment agency. They said, um, yeah, we can, we can give you a job. It's, it's pushing racks in the garment district. Uh, it's going to make $37.50 a week. And I had to pay for a place to live. Well, the closest thing I could find to where I was working in the garment district was the Chelsea Hotel. The famous Chelsea Hotel, where all the down and out broke artists were living, and the the beatniks were turning it over to the hippies, and all of that was going on because this was in the sixties. It was nineteen sixty exactly, and um, so it was very interesting. The only problem was I couldn't afford the Chelsea Hotel, even as cheap as it was back then. So I moved into uh, the YMCA, which was across the street, uh, the McBurney Y. Anyway, um, so I, I worked through the summer and met some very uh, interesting, but very poor people. I mean, it was a sweatshop company I was basically working for. And it was such a, a revelation to me. You know, this was a whole different world than I'd seen before. And um, to answer your original question, no, I don't think I was ever thought I was in this world to help other people. And I wasn't born with that impulse at all. But I went through um, uh, Eastern studies at Columbia, along with economics, which my father required that I major in, and English, which I love because I love to write. And uh, so I had double major in English and economics, but I was close to a third major at, in uh, Eastern studies, primarily Buddhism. They had an amazing department at Columbia probably still do, but they were, they were one of the leading schools in the West, you know, in America for studying this sort of mm -hmm. stuff, uh, Eastern religion. And uh, I'd come out of those classes, and my mind would be blown. I'd be standing on a street corner wondering whether I should try to cross in traffic because I was so uh, totally caught up in this and in, in in these ideas. These ideas are so amazingly profound. Anyway, when I graduated from uh, Columbia, did it in three and a half years. Wow. And because um, I was out of money at that point, I was married and um, my son Matthew had been born. And uh, I, the, this job came up uh, to be a caseworker. And uh, I didn't know where I was going to be assigned, but I went through the training. This was before there was Medicare or Medicaid. And so people, my caseload was mainly old people, and they assigned me to Harlem. So they were old, all black people. Well, they were the most loving. Uh, it's, it's so hard to describe how with nothing for that and nothing material they were so rich spiritually yeah. and so kind to me when i was there to help them and i mean they were just i mean i think 
in a way they were shocked that there was a white person sitting next to them who cared about what they were going right. through. So that's what triggered it. But I was just blown away by it. I had no idea. You know, I had all of these caricatures of what, you know, Harlem would be like yeah. and black people like and poverty was like and it was all I was all wrong. I was I was an idiot. Right. What what <laughs> about but what, I was I was an innocent idiot. <laughs> uh, but what a beautiful lesson. What a gift. Oh, it was incredible. Yeah. It was the happened to me. When I was free, I drove over to a little town called Castine on the coast. And um, there was a, a decrepit farmhouse. Hadn't been lived in in years and years and years. Had no running water. Had no um, septic tank. Um, had an outhouse. And a barn that was falling down. And uh, it was $15,000 for the house and 22 acres. And I went in to see the broker, a, a great old lady that I got to know very well later on, named B. Sperling. And she said, and this is totally against the ethics of a real estate broker, she said, eh, it's been on the market for a while. Offer him $9,500. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Don't you love people said, like that? Oh, okay. <laughs> so I offered them 9500 and they took it. And then um, I had to scramble to get the down payment yeah. to, to uh, make it happen when I got home. Because that was, even 9500 was a lot of money for me at that point. But anyway, in the long run, we moved there. Um, we worked on restoring the house. Um, my daughter, Kristen, had been born by then. We were raising chickens and goats. The kids would go down to this little barn that I built and um, where the goats were kept. They had a horse. They had a quarter horse. Uh -huh. rusty, and um, where, they, where they could ride. And, uh, and we, we uh, planted trees. And, uh, you know, like apple trees and peach trees and, and like. And we started a farm, cleared a huge field where I had an amazing insight about God and fire and how we're just little sparks coming off the main fire. It was very trippy, insightful thought at the time that uh, has stayed with me. And the nature of souls departing the source, why we do it, where we burn out, do we wind up back in the fire? Anyway. Um, and this was just a vision that you had? No, when? this was an actual huge blaze we cleared a field of alder trees right. of the stuff that had grown up over the years and um and i we started this fire and as night descended and i was standing there watching it it was just such a like a revelation yes yes of, of source the heat the light the the beauty the power and how we uh on a whim perhaps or ego or whatever drives us to break free from that and go flying off on our own and the sparks would go off like this and you know very glorious and then they would just drop yeah. <laughs> and burn out and uh so i took i took it as a spiritual journey as yes. well the other thing about the farmhouse was that we had a ghost and i knew who i found out who the ghost was because an old man who lived down the road said when he was a little boy he had met Al Webster, who was the guy who built this house. He'd come back from the Civil War, had a bad wound in his throat from a, uh, from a shot from, uh, from the enemy. Anyway, um, 
we would hear him walking around upstairs at night. We'd we'd hear uh, the dog would bark. You know, the fur would rise on the back of his neck, and he'd bark. Excited. Well, we had a friend from Philadelphia, uh, Danny Heifetz, who was a violinist, distantly related to Yasha. And he'd studied uh, in Philadelphia, and he came to visit us, and he wanted to practice every day. So he would go upstairs, and he would be practicing. And one day he came downstairs, he'd been playing a Bach trick home, and he said, I was playing, he said, and I looked up, and there was this face of an old man just hanging in the, in the air watching me and he said i thought i wonder what i should do but he like a good performer kept on playing, playing. Until he finished. and when he finished the face faded away and after that we never had any more footsteps how I interesting think, I think Danny had liberated yes somehow that music and very interesting wow so, so then, is that when you you started school? Then, when you were living at the old um, or seminary? Um, well, uh, I wound up back in. I was doing some other things too that I probably didn't even include it in my bio. We were doing summer stock theater. Oh, okay. I went back to the University of Maine. I took. Uh, they had a, a graduate course called uh, Master of Arts in Liberal Studies, where you could pick your own courses. So I, I took philosophy and theater. Oh, together. what a great, what a great combination. And you could take any course in any department, uh, as long as you could justify it to your committee. And so I took all the best courses at yeah. the University of Maine and, um, that were at all related. And um, that was really helpful later on because um, we wound up buying this uh, church. Union Street for a church building that had been abandoned in Bangor, Maine. But I'm getting ahead of myself because after we graduated, after now, now this this is actually my second wife, Charlene, and I were both students at the seminary together, okay. and, and we'd been together before that. We did theater together. In fact, we met each other doing Oklahoma. Um, nice. In, but um, so we went to seminary. Um, she was very good at Greek and, and Hebrew. I was terrible. I didn't even try to take it. She was she was the star student in the in those courses, and uh, she and she, she and I, uh, I, I, driving up to the seminary every day. I would drive past this church, huge church, um, beautiful old brick church called the Union Street Brick Church, appropriately, and. One day I said, I gotta go look at it. I went, I went in, I called the broker. The broker said, I'm so glad you called. They want to turn it into a section eight housing, you know, knock down the steeple and, oh. and take up glass and all of that. So maybe you can save it. So um, we went to, uh, I went to the, um, all these meetings, the historic commission had to give its approval because it was an historic building. And the, um, it was a Unitarian church. The Unitarians were saying, well, if we can't, if we can't uh, sell it to these people, it's just going to sit there forever because uh, who's going to buy a church? And I'd be in the back of the room and I'd raise my hand. Nice. <laughs> say, I'll buy it. So um, eventually somebody in the committee said, well, he said he'll buy it. Of course, I had no money compared to this group that wanted to convert it into housing. But how much money 
the Unitarians could get for it was not the issue. The issue was keeping it yes. church. And so I wound up, they financed it for me, and I wound, we wound up buying it and using it as both a theater and a church. And um, there's somewhere out in the, in the ether, there's a story that the Christian Science Monitor wrote up about us on the... Beautiful. Uh, on, all this, all this church is a stage. It was called, and um, it was. Um, we did. A lot, we started with passion plate, the story of Jesus. Yes. So back to the NDEs. Um, I know you said yes. one thing about. You mentioned Peter Panagor, who I'm going to actually be interviewing here. I think next week, and you said that oh, one, well. one thing that. Um, when he says about, um, it's not that he has faith anymore, he knows. You know, can you just talk, talk about that when people, people experience sure. that? When you've, when you've been there, done that, you know it. You don't have to have faith. And um, it's not to demean or belittle faith. It's just to say, hey, I tell you something pretty much praising God. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. For, for the favor that uh, that had happened. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's um, people come back with gifts too. People come back with uh, a talent for, geez, everything from communicating with animals and plants to yes. um, healing. Some people can do, you know, amazing healing after, after they've had a new death. Right. Some of them come back with um, the ability to prophesy. And I've talked to some of them on the on my show as well. Um, one of the joys of being a chaplain was the chance to talk to people who had coded, whose hearts had stopped, who'd been resuscitated. I'd go in and say, "Well, did you see anything when you were on the other side?" Yeah. And they, their eyes would light up. You know, sometimes, and they'd say. Yes, you know, and they wanted to talk about it, but they were afraid people would think they were crazy. Right. And I would take that story to the next room, and I'd say, I just, you know, I'd get their permission to do this. I'd say, of course, I won't use your name or anything, but can I use the story that you just told me? And uh, it was, I think, one I, that you liked about the, the woman who had seen her father. Yes. She, uh, she was one that I remember clearly because she was so excited to tell me about it. She said, I saw my father. He he died three years ago, but he was standing right there, and I was just like I was a little girl again. She said, "But and I saw behind him. I saw this beautiful light. And I just wanted to run into the light." But he said, "No, it's not your time yet." So, like a little girl, I tried to run around. And this is a woman in her late fifties, probably maybe early sixties, <clears throat> but she saw herself as just a little child. Uh... Wanted to rush into the light. He stops her. Says, "No, you have to go back." So she came back. Yeah, he was so happy to tell that story. And I said, "Can I tell this story to other people?" She said, "Oh yes." Yeah, so they're that, such I, beautiful, and I think what's the the stories are profound in themselves, but then how it changes people's lives, you know. Well, one one thing that happens almost always is that people are no longer at, at all afraid of death. Some of them actually yearn for it. Um. There are all kinds of there are all kinds of amazing stories, but as I say, the short the shortcut is to go listen to nderadio.org. Right, and I know um, you talk about reincarnation, which is which is interesting because I I think it's um, especially being a chaplain and going to you know 
I, I guess growing up, this is my religious background. I was raised Christian, but now I'm, I'm spiritual, I guess you could say. Um, I always thought that people didn't really believe in reincarnation if they were like pastors or ministers or chaplains or anything like that. And I love it when you say, which I so believe that it just wouldn't be fair to have only one life selves, but then how it changes people's lives, you know? Well, one, one thing that happens almost always is that people are no longer at, at all afraid of death. Some of them actually yearn for it. Yes, <laughs> yearn not, to go back. Yeah, go back. They're not, they know they're not, they, they can't do it themselves. You know, right. they have to wait. There are all kinds of, there are all kinds of amazing stories, but as I say, the short, the shortcut is to go listen to nderadio.org. Right. And I know um, you talk about reincarnation, which is, which is interesting because I, I think it's um, especially being a chaplain and going to, you know, I, I guess growing up, this is my religious background. I was raised Christian, but now I'm, I'm spiritual, I guess you could say. Um, I always thought that people didn't really believe in reincarnation if they were like pastors or ministers or chaplains or anything like that. And I love it when you say, which I so believe that it just wouldn't be fair to have only one life. And have you, do you know Christopher Bache? I think it's B-A-C-H-E. He talks about that, about that in his book, Life Cycles. Anyway, um, so could you just talk a little bit about that? Because I know you've heard wonderful stories about children, children recalling past lives. I interviewed Carol Bowman and she was just beautiful, beautiful stories. So can you just, we don't have too much more time, but just talk about reincarnation a little bit. Sure. Um, it goes back to uh, Plato. Plato has this wonderful story yes. in the Republic about how a soldier who's killed in the battlefield wakes up. They're about to burn his body like two weeks later after he died. And he wakes up and he tells the story about how um, it's, and it's an NDE story and it's 400 BC, how uh, he wakes up um, from the funeral pyre said, I'm sent back to tell you what happens. Talks about um, a version of, um, of a life judgment his involved judges and maybe a temporary time in hell or in heaven to, to benefit or to punish then he said we all got together again out in this field this beautiful field and then they went drank from um, the river of forgetfulness and were reincarnated yes and um there were many christians early on who believed in reincarnation it was, was it that the gnostic text well, yes, in Gnostic texts, but I mean, it was part of um, some of the church fathers up until right. the, until the three hundreds. You know, they started trying to codify the church, and I think they probably did away with reincarnation because it allows for too much flexibility on the part of the parishioners. They can't control your congregation if they think, "Hey, this is this is tough," but I'm going to be reborn and I'll do it again. Right. Yes. somewhere else under some other circumstances they didn't like they didn't like uh, allowing that much flexibility uh, but how can you say if, if well like the fundamental christians say you've got to even before they were conceived and said i'm yeah. going to be your son or i'm your daughter and uh there are a lot of stories yeah. out there i have a, someone well. coming on who's a spirit baby medium 
and she connects with you know spirit before before even pregnancy and i'm i'm very excited about that so well lee we need to wrap it up but thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing sharing your life story and and i i really really yes absolutely and once again if people want to find you since this is the second part of your of your right. interview uh ian's nde radio uh at the uh, google store apple uh will get you a, a free app that you put on your phone yes all the past shows or you can just go to nderadio.org and uh all the shows come up hit the past shows button there are 350 some odd shows wow we're at all interested in in what people have to say about what they saw on the other side i mean if you go through the if you go through the whole archive you will be a believer by the end of it i am yes sure. absolutely so convincing absolutely and it's been a joy for me to participate in people uh, i bet well thank you very much and you you have a great rest of the day thanks you too okay bye-bye bye Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.